Well, as the children are leaving, I just wanted to express my gratitude to you for uh, the mission statements that many of you have been sending in. We preached a message a few weeks ago on the vital, uh, the, the, uh, the healthy church member, and we talked about um, perhaps you making a mission statement. And so we've been putting these on the uh, screen between Sunday school and worship hour, and so we encourage you to read those and still getting them. And I hope that they're impactful to you and that you display them in your own home. Well, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew 28, the very last three verses of the chapter, very, very familiar to us. Verses 18, 19, and 20. If you're fairly new to the Bible, Matthew is first book in the New Testament. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is really just our jumping off point here for the last several weeks we've been taking the break from our usual practice of verse-by-verse exposition to really take a closer look, a broader look at some important issues for us as Christians, particularly concerning the church of Jesus Christ. And there is one issue in the church of Jesus Christ that by many accounts has caused more debate, more nervousness, more angst, more pain even than any other. And even among those who claim true and genuine faith in Christ, this is an issue that has literally caused believers in Christ to turn on each other and kill one another. And that is the issue of water baptism. At the beginning of the Great Reformation in which the true gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone was spreading across Europe in opposition to the Roman Catholic theology of salvation by works, the issue of baptism, particularly the mode or the method of baptism, really became the hot topic of the day. And when the Reformers led people away from the heresy of Roman Catholicism, almost all the Catholic practices were, were abandoned, were changed, except for one. And that was infant baptism continued. And the idea of baptizing only those who made a credible profession of faith in Christ, that was considered radical. That was weird to the Reformers. At the beginning of the Reformation, a group emerged that was nicknamed by their opponents. They were nicknamed the Anabaptists, which just means the re-baptizers. Well, the Anabaptists believed that the Bible taught that true water baptism was only for professing believers in Christ, and therefore it, it couldn't be for infants. In Zurich, Switzerland, under the spiritual leadership of Ulrich Zwingli, the city council, which was was part and parcel of the church. They were one and the same in very many ways. They felt that the Anabaptists were promoting this change too quickly. And so on January 21st, 1525, the council voted to forbid the Anabaptists from preaching and teaching their views. Well, the Anabaptists said, oh yeah, watch this. And the same night, they all got together and they all baptized each other. Now, because of this and continued insistence by the Anabaptists to practice believer's baptism, in 1526, the city council of Zurich issued a decree 
condemning the local Anabaptists to death. And to make their point, the city council executed the Anabaptists by drowning them. And the, the saying was, you want to be baptized, here you go. Now, we still consider Zwingli an important part of the Reformation, but that was a terrible lapse in judgment on his part to be a part of that. The Reformers, of course, were flawed men. The many of the Anabaptists, they fled to other parts of Europe to find peace, but they continued to be persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants alike, and many of them continued to die for their belief in believers' baptism. In fact, in 1566, in the Netherlands, 3,000 Anabaptists were all executed in a mass execution. So it's safe to say that the issue of water baptism is not just a theological discussion. Lives have been lost over this issue. Now, in our time and in our culture, we probably won't face that type of an intense need to take a side. But we do face a different challenge concerning baptism, and that is the challenge of indifference toward baptism, of cheapening baptism and not even thinking it's that big of a deal. So this is kind of our final installment here in our mini-series, Healthy Church Refills, where we've been examining just three vital issues in the church. We're getting kind of refills of subjects that we've taught before. We looked first at the signs of a thriving church member. We looked at the vital necessity of the Lord's table. And today I want to look at the vital necessity of water baptism. Now, I want to be as clear and as organized as possible. I'm hopeful that this will be easy for you to understand. So I'm going to follow a similar thought process that we did last week. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I'm going to answer some questions. What is baptism? Who may be baptized? How do we baptize? Why do we baptize? And then we'll finish this off by asking the question, when may children be baptized? And so we'll look at what, who, how, why, and when. So first of all, what is baptism? Well, I want to give you a simple definition to start with. I'll repeat it a couple of times in in case you're a note taker, but here's our simple definition of baptism. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ. Let me take you that far again. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey him. I told you it was simple, right? I didn't say it was short. Baptism is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection and intend to follow and obey him. Now, why do we have to have such a long definition? Well, I told you last week that the Lord's table is very succinct. The Lord's table is the body and the blood of Christ, period. But baptism has layers of meaning and symbolism for us. So to help us get a spiritual foundation, uh, kind of a starting point, turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. Now, Romans chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, it's not talking about water baptism per se. It's using the broader metaphorical use of baptized to simply mean to be completely plunged into something, to be plunged into a new state of being. Now, water baptism is the outward demonstration of the internal reality that's already happened. And this is what Paul's describing in Romans 6, the internal reality. And so just to give us a foundation, and we won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want you to be aware of this text. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the baptism that Paul is speaking of here, this is the the close identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. I'll give you another example of close identification. You don't have to turn here, but just listen. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Again, the apostle Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, meaning their escape from Egypt. And listen to this. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what did Paul mean by baptized into Moses? He simply meant that they were fully a part of God's program for Israel, of being rescued by God, of being placed graciously under the authority of the law of God. In other words, to be baptized is to be completely absorbed into something or into someone and to have complete association with that thing or that person. So what is baptism? It is a post-salvation act of faith and public testimony that you have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and intend to follow and obey him. Now, just as a little side note here, because some of you may be asking this question, what was the baptism that John performed? In fact, he baptized so many that he was nicknamed John the what? The Baptist, the baptizer. So what was that? What was he doing? Well, it certainly wasn't believer's baptism of the church of Jesus Christ. This was a precursor. This served a different purpose. This was a coming attractions. This was a a pre-screening, so to speak. But if you were living in Jesus' day or before, and you were a Gentile, and you wanted to come to faith in the true and living God, you had to become a Jew. That's what you had to do. And so you did that with three little things that you did. The first one, if you're a male, you became circumcised. Secondly, you had to publicly baptize yourself. And this was baptism by complete, completely being plunged into water. And you did this in front of the Jewish officials of the town or the city. And you said, I want to obey the law of God. And you plunged yourself into the river to say, I'm starting a new life. And then the third thing you had to do was you had to verbally declare, I am loyal to God and I am loyal to the law to the law of Moses. But John the Baptist did something unprecedented. Baptism was only if you were a Gentile desiring to become a Jew. John told all the Jews, you need to be baptized. In other words, you need to come to God as if you were, are filthy and unclean. And so the first thing he did was to shame them because they needed to repent 
They needed to come with an internal reality of faith, not just external works. And the second thing he did that was unprecedented is that he was doing the baptizing. With a normal baptism in Jewish culture, you would just come and you would stand in the river or wherever you were being baptized. You would tell them, I want to be a Jew. And you would plunk yourself down in the water and stand up. John didn't do that. He said, I'm going to baptize you. Why did he do this? Because he only baptized those who would express repentance of sin. And he refused to baptize those who would not. In fact, he refused to baptize the Pharisees and they didn't like that, especially when he started calling them names like snakes and things like that. In other words, John's baptism was fenced. It was guarded. What was the purpose? The purpose of his baptism was to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, to exhort them to humble their hearts because as John said, the Lamb of God, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he's coming. And he's coming literally in days or weeks after John began his ministry. So John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was a preparation for the coming of Christ. But to help us continue answering what baptism is, we need to consider what baptism is not. There are two things that water baptism is not. First of all, it is not proof of salvation. It is not proof of salvation. Now, I read to you the example of being associated with Moses, baptized into Moses in 1 Corinthians 10. If that's all I read... Most Jews in Jesus' day would agree with that. Oh, yes, we've been baptized into Moses. That's why we're special. That's why we're saved. Paul wouldn't agree with that. You know what he went on to say? He went on to say right after that is that most of those who were outwardly associated with God and his people were inwardly wicked and ultimately rejected by God. So just being baptized into Moses, even metaphorically, wasn't proof of anything. When it comes to water, evangel- water baptism, rather traditional evangelicalism points very often to how many baptisms have been performed in a given week or a given month or a year because water baptism is seen as proof of salvation. Some churches will even post a sign, this is how many baptisms we've done this year. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, but if the theology behind that is this is also how many people were saved this year, they don't know that. They have no way of knowing that. And this is extremely dangerous because rather than looking at the continued fruit of salvation in the life of the professing believer, many simply point back to an event. Oh yeah, I was baptized. That's how I know I'm saved. That can be an eternally fatal error. So it is not proof of salvation. Secondly, water baptism is not an act of salvation. It's not an act of salvation. This is sometimes called by theologians baptismal regeneration. Roman Catholics, many Lutherans, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox have this view. Uh, The Catholic and Orthodox view of baptism is the same. One theologian says the nature of baptism is the same for both the Roman Catholics as the Greek Orthodox baptism. It is the cleansing of sin from the baptized individual. The, the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Egyptian Orthodox, they openly say, one, one of their theologians says, quote, baptism is a holy sacrament by which we are born again. Now, why is that eternally fatal? Because there's something missing. The faith of the individual. For those groups, baptism and faith are completely separate. They're not even related. 
But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Many in that erroneous and spiritually fatal belief system might point to 1 Peter 3.21. So let's just take care of that. 1 Peter 3.21, you don't have to turn there. It just says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Oh, that sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Well, first of all, I've already said this. Baptism doesn't always have to be exclusively water in context. It simply means to be completely identified or taken into something what was Peter talking about in context of 1 Peter 3.21, the broader text? He had just said that Noah was saved in the ark, that Noah was associated with. He was in, he was a part of the ark which saved him. And in the same way, we're in Christ who saves us. He's not saying that we are baptized with water baptism to save us. We're immersed in Christ. We are plunged into Christ. So water baptism is not proof of salvation. It is not an act of salvation. Let's do another question, though. The question that has been at the core of baptism debates, who may be baptized? Who may be baptized? Once in a while, we'll get a call or I'll get an email from somebody we don't know saying, I'd like you to baptize one of my family members. Like we're a drive through baptism service, and for 1995, you too uh, can be baptized. So who may be baptized? Well, the major debate occurs between two groups that we would call Paedo-Baptists and Credo-Baptists. You don't have to know how to spell those or even remember them. Paedo-Baptists are those who believe in infant baptism, and the Credo-Baptists are those who believe in the statement of belief in Christ. A creed is necessary for salvation. Now, to be fair, Paedo-Baptism was the position of almost all the original reformers and of many great men in our era um, as well. Basically, paedobaptism says that infant children of believers, and they're often called covenant children, should be baptized. And here's what their argument is. They argue that since God's redemptive plan, it has continuity, has consistency throughout history. In the Old Testament, God instituted the sign of circumcision to an infant to be applied to male infants. It didn't save, but it did mark them out as part of God's covenant people. And so Paedobaptists connect circumcision in the Old Testament with baptism in the New Testament as a mark of covenant membership. Marking a child out as a part of God's covenant people in faith that he will come to saving faith on his own at a later time. Well, there's a lot of weaknesses to this view, and I'll just point out three very briefly. First of all, there's no direct command anywhere in Scripture for believers to baptize newborn children. There's no command anywhere. Uh, and the average believer in Christ is not going to come to the conclusion of infant baptism just by reading your Bible. In other words, you have to have significant help from pastors and complex theological arguments and studies which show that the Bible might, maybe, hint at infant baptism. Listen, I don't know about you, but I'm always suspicious of anything that can't be understood unless your pastor explains it to you. We are believers in Jesus Christ who have a Bible, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we can read it and understand it. If you read the Bible cover to cover, not one of you would come to the conclusion of infant baptism. Why? Because it's not there. There's a second weakness to this view. There's no example in the Bible of infant baptism. Now, Paedobaptists, they argue the instances of the New Testament, in the New Testament of a person being baptized along with his household, 
uh, people like Cornelius and Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Crispus, uh, Stephanus, that, that they would say this indicates full family baptism. But the problem is, is that none of those texts say that these members were baptized only because they were members of the household. The evidence points to the fact that there were household conversions which led to baptism. And of course, it never says there were infants in those houses. And by the way, a household in that culture also included your slaves and included even your dogs, every living thing that lived in there. And so when you say our household was baptized, it means, I'm just kidding about the dogs. We don't baptize dogs. It means that your, your, your believing aunts and uncles, your grandmother, your mom who lives on the, on the wing that you built on for, your, your children who come to saving faith, and your slaves, and even their children who come to saving faith. We would never say that the children of one of my servants, one of my employees, is part of the covenant family. And so that argument falls down. And of course, there's a third weakness. There is a huge discontinuity between circumcision and baptism. They have almost nothing in common, actually. And so to try to make them have continuity really doesn't work. So what is the pattern found in Scripture? Who may be baptized? Well, very simply, those who have already experienced the new birth on the basis of their faith. Those who have repented and demonstrate active faith and obedience. And here's the pattern. Acts 2, the 3,000 who came to faith on Pentecost. Acts 8, the Ethiopian who believed in Christ. Acts 9, Saul who would become the Apostle Paul. Acts 10, Cornelius. Acts 16, Lydia. Acts 16, the, the Philippian jailer. All of these were baptized after faith and pretty much immediately after faith. Now, of course, we want to guard baptism. So how do we know that somebody has experienced the new birth? I have often joked that I wish people just had a little light. Red, you're not saved. Green, you're saved. And we could tell. But there's no way to know for certain. And so we guard baptism primarily in two ways. First of all, we receive a testimony of conversion, of life before and life after Christ. There should be a difference. And second, we ask for an explanation of the gospel. It's not as likely that someone is a believer in Christ if they can't even explain how they got there. If they don't understand what their faith is at some level. So who may be baptized? Those who have professed faith in Christ and have committed to follow him. And the pattern in scripture, generally speaking, is that baptism follows after certain conversion to Christ. So we need to ask another question. This has been at the crux of debate for years. How do we baptize? How do we baptize? Well, two simple answers. One, by immersion, and two, publicly. By immersion and publicly. First, we baptize by immersion. It's sometimes called the, the mode of baptism. The Greek word translated baptize is baptizo. It simply means to immerse or to dip. The earliest English translations of our Bible, the translators basically said, I'm not getting in the middle of this debate not going to say immerse because that's what baptizo really means. So they just made up a word called baptize. And we say, well, let the theologians work that out. We're just translating. But as I mentioned before, can also have non-water uses. It means to be immersed, not just in water. As an example, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, verse 11, that those who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be, quote, baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in, identified with the Spirit of God, and those who will not believe on the Lord will be baptized with fire. 
meaning immersed in and identified with the judgment of God. So if I can put it this way, all human beings will experience a spiritual baptism, either baptism of the Holy Spirit, which means that you have become a Christian, or the baptism in the judgment of God, immersed in either God's grace or immersed in God's judgment. Does that make sense? That's the relevance of baptizo. The word baptized doesn't allow for any other meaning. In fact, in 1813, uh, a theologian by the name of David Benedict, he's actually a church historian, he wrote a book about the history of the Baptist denomination. And he wrote, wrote about the mode of baptism in history and listened to his, I don't know if you call it irritation or just sarcasm, but it's funny either way. He says this, Baptism, as it was instituted by the great Christian lawgiver, that is Christ, was a plain and significant rite. But in process of time, baptism passed from visible believers to catechized minors and from them to unconscious babies. And from immersion, listen to this, it was reduced to pouring, then to sprinkling, and now to any mode which the inventive fancies of capricious candidates may devise, provided always that some part of them ends up wet. You can hear his frustration. Translation, we don't get to just make up how we baptize. We don't get to make it up. The imperial persecution in Rome drove Christians in Rome underground and secret baptistries were constructed in the catacombs of Rome. As a matter of fact, the remains of those baptistries are the oldest archaeological witness to how Christian baptism was performed. One historian writes about a baptistry that was used from the first to the fourth century. This is during the time of the apostles and after. He writes, quote, One such baptistry in the catacomb of San Panziano is four and a half feet long, three and a half feet wide, and three and a half feet deep. That's not for sprinkling. A channel diverted water from a nearby stream to fill this fountain. It was used from the first to the fourth century. So how do we baptize first by immersion, second, publicly. Listen very carefully. We have a personal faith. In other words, you cannot come to faith in Christ just because your mom and dad did. You will not go to heaven just because your grandparents were Christians. You will not be part of the, the family of God because you happen to be around others. We have a personal faith. You alone must repent. You alone must get on your knees before God and acknowledge Christ as the Savior. But while we, don't have a per, while we do have a personal faith, we do not have a private faith. We don't have a private faith. Anyone who says, my faith in God is really just between me and him, translation, I'm not actually a Christian. We have a faith that is lived together in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, for example, if someone says he decided to baptize himself in his bathtub all alone, aside from the creepiness of that, he didn't get baptized. He just got wet. That's all he did. Baptism is always, underline always, a profession of faith with other believers witnessing that profession. Listen, can I put it this way? If someone says, I'm too embarrassed to get dunked in a tank of water in front of other people, we would say, then you're too embarrassed to follow Christ because that's the easiest thing he's ever going to ask you to do. By the way, many of you, myself included, were raised in Christian environments that 
either didn't understand Christian baptism or just ignored what the Bible said and went with church tradition anyway. And it's caused a lot of angst and, and sometimes a little frustration at being misled. Whatever stage you're in, though, now you know. Now you're accountable for that information. So the how do we baptize question is not complicated, by immersion and publicly. But let's get to the heart of the issue. We know what baptism is, who may be baptized, how are we are baptized. Here's the crux of the deal, though. Why do we baptize? Why do we baptize? I want to give you four reasons, but we really only need the first one, but I'll give you the other three just to provide some support. Reason number one, the only one we need, it is a command of Christ. It's that simple. Now, we've already met, read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus was not ambiguous in the least. He says believers in Christ are baptized. Now, just as a little side note, that text that we read, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That text is accurately called the Great Commission that it is the command to go into the world and spread the gospel. Could I say this? That more accurately, it should be called the great ecclesiology because it is really more about how the church functions. Step one, proclaim the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations. Step two, baptize new believers. Step three, teach them the word of God. Teach them the commands of Christ. That's ecclesiology. That's how to do church. And so far from just being a statement for missionaries, that's a statement for all of us. That's how the local church is to function. And did you notice that what's the first thing you do with a new believer? You baptize them. Listen, these are two commands. The first one is specific. I command you to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The second one is general and teach them to obey everything else I've commanded. If you don't want to follow the first command of Christ, why would the church have any reason to believe you want to follow any of the others? Jesus said that if you love him, you obey his commandments, John 14, 15, and he commanded baptism first. That alone ought to be enough. But I'll give you three more reasons. Here's reason number two. I've already alluded to this, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more. Reason number two, baptism publicly identifies you as a follower of Christ. Baptism publicly identifies you as a follower of Christ. We might say that there's five representative meanings of baptism to show you to be a follower of Christ. First, we might call the first meaning association. Association. Jesus commanded his disciples, as we've just read, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a public statement of belief in the triune God a desire to associate with him. By the way, when you do anything in the name of God, it's saying that you're doing something that God wants you to do. So you're being baptized in the name of the Father who wants you to be baptized, in the name of the Son who wants you to be baptized, and in the name of the Spirit who wants you to be baptized. There is full agreement within the triune God that you ought to be baptized and you desire to associate with him. The second representative meaning, association, and then identification identification. We've already referenced Romans 6 where we're buried with him and raised with him. The Apostle Paul illustrates this by referring to the believer as being in Christ 85 times in his 
epistles. And baptism is a monumental statement that we're with him, we're in him. And the, the, the symbolism is obvious, that you die with Christ, you're buried, and then you're brought up, you're raised with him. And me taking the super soaker and sprinkling somebody with it doesn't do that same picture. And so we have association, identification. We also would talk about purification. Purification. Now, just to be clear, baptism is not a means of purification, but it's representative of the cleansing of sin as part of the new covenant. Titus 3, verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the what? The washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so as you enter the waters of baptism and you're completely submerged and cleaned, it represents the total, complete cleansing of sin that Christ gave and that is necessary to enter into the new covenant. And so we have association, identification, purification. We might also talk about the symbol of liberation, of liberation. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But now we're, we're liberated. The, the wrath of God no longer holds terror for us. When we go down with the death of Christ and come up with the resurrection of Christ, we are liberated. And finally, we might talk about the symbol of incorporation. Incorporation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us that in one spirit we have all been baptized in one body and all made to drink of one spirit. Now, this is speaking primarily of the work of the Holy Spirit in officially incorporating us into the church, into the body of Christ. But water baptism certainly is that symbol of incorporation into membership with the church. So we have association, identification, purification, liberation, incorporation. Let me give you a third reason why we do water baptism. Baptism is evidence of commitment to Christ. Baptism is evidence of commitment to Christ. Now, let's be very precise. I did not say proof. I said evidence. It's evidence to those in the church that their commitment to Christ is genuine. As I said before, baptism is probably the simplest thing that Christ will ever ask you to do. It takes a few minutes. It's easy. You get wet you dry off, and you're done. I could give many more complicated things to do. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's harder. Children, obey your parents. Servants, obey your masters. These are hard things that go for a lifetime. Baptism is easy. It goes once. The First John 2, 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Somebody says, I've come to faith in Christ, but I don't want to be be baptized. You're a liar. You haven't come to faith. Acts 2.38, at the end of his sermon, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is often a proof text, supposedly, for baptismal regeneration. See, you have to repent and be baptized to be forgiven. That's exactly the opposite of what Peter's saying. What he's saying is, listen, I'm speaking to you today. We're blocks. We're hundreds of yards away from the offices of the people that eight weeks ago murdered Jesus. And here you are publicly saying, I want to follow Christ. Really? If it's true, if it's real, you'll make it public. You'll be baptized. If it's real. 
Peter is essentially saying, do you really want to follow Christ? Are you really repentant and really willing to count the cost? Because some of you are going to die for your faith, and historically, many of them did. Listen, baptism in the early church was to take your life in your own hands because it meant Christ before Caesar. It meant Christ before Jewish leaders. It meant Christ before anybody. About 250 AD, Emperor Decius he loathed Christians, but he, rather than just killing them, his strategy was to try to get them to turn away from Christ. And so he tried bribery with some Christians. He tortured them. He threatened them. He imprisoned them. And then Decius got really, really sneaky. And he commanded, and see if this sounds familiar from the book of Daniel, he commanded that all Roman citizens had to sacrifice to the traditional Roman gods, and then, and only then, would they be given an official certificate that they had obeyed this order. And that certificate proved that you weren't a lawbreaker. One certificate, it's called in Latin the libellus, was discovered in Egypt, and this is what it said. Quote, the edict of Decius 250, that's the year, commanded provincial governors and magistrates assisted where necessary by local notable people to superintend the sacrifices to the gods and to the genius of the emperor to be performed by all on a fixed day. In other words, after that day, anybody who didn't have that certificate was in big trouble. And in that environment, a professing Christian who refused to be baptized in the church, they would say, we're not even giving you the time of day, get out of our way. Because if you are a Christian, you will be baptized and you will refuse, obviously, to make that sacrifice and you will take your life in your own hands because that's what true followers of Christ do. Jesus said in Mark 2, 8, 34, that if you want to follow after me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself and you follow me no matter the cost. Here's a fourth reason we baptize. Baptism is directly connected to membership in the local church. Baptism is directly connected to membership in the local church. We are not a drive-through baptism service. Acts 2, 41 and 42. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, this is speaking after, after Peter's sermon, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I want you to listen to several things I just read. First of all, somebody took account of how many were, were, were being baptized. Why? Because they were keeping track of who are the members of the brand new church of Jesus Christ and who are not. The second thing, what did all the baptized people do? Did they say, thanks, Pete, appreciate it, we're going to move on now? Nope. They gathered together and they submitted to the leaders of the church at that time, the apostles. And the third thing we would notice is they took the Lord's Supper together only as baptized members. Parents, if you have little children who have not, not come to faith in Christ, stop feeding them the Lord's Supper. It's not theirs to take, okay? Don't do it. The concept of baptizing someone who makes no commitment to join a local assembly of, of Christians is unknown in the Bible. We have a personal faith. We do not have a private faith. By the way, since baptism is a one-time event in the life of the Christian and we, we live in a culture where it's easy to move from one place to another, we receive new members who attest that they've been publicly baptized in another location, and we're fine with that. Well, one final question. 
we need to ask, when may children be baptized? When may children be baptized? This is not an easy question to unpack. Now, we hold the credo baptism, believer's baptism, and so we rightly have a concern for the baptism of children. The church has been plagued by an easy believism which uses methods, methodology, systems to supposedly bring people to faith in Christ. We have the altar call. We have the extensive invitations. We have the sinner's prayer. All of these methods that we've invented to say, yep, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. But there's several practical reasons to be very cautious when it comes to the baptism of children. First of all, children are built to follow and they're taught to obey. I just preached a series on parenting and we tell our parents to make your children obey, tell them to obey. Children aren't emotionally capable of resisting strong social pressure. I've seen instances and heard of instances of of a children's summer church camp or vacation Bible school where every kid there got saved. Why? Because no child can resist the social pressure of when 15 of my friends are doing something, I'm going to stand by myself. They won't do that. And there might even be pressure coming from their parents without the parents even knowing it. You've been giving the gospel to your children. You're telling them that you hope that they get saved and that when they're saved, they can be baptized. And you've also taught them, obey me in everything I tell you to do. And so that places children in the interesting position of wanting to obey their parents. Their parents want them to be saved. And so out of obedience to parents, not out of regeneration, A child may desire to be baptized. So that's the first caution. There's a second caution. A child may not fully understand or be able to articulate the gospel. And with particularly smaller children, discerning whether or not they grasp the gospel can be very, very difficult. Now, God can save anyone at any stage in life. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Jeremiah the prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. God can do this. But that doesn't mean we can tell that God did that. John the Baptist wasn't born and he didn't say, let me show you the Romans road and tell you the four steps of salvation. He didn't do that. He just said, goo, and that was it. So nobody knew he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's another caution, one that concerns me the most, and that is that baptism can cause false assurance of salvation in children. Because children, whether we tell them this or not, are more as often as not going to see baptism as proof that they were saved. They checked off something. And there's one more caution. Local churches, I think, were rightly cautious of a, of a spiritual culture in which everyone is saved. A spiritual culture in which everyone is saved. We're concerned that a stampede to the baptistry doesn't necessarily mean a revival. just means a trend. So those are legitimate concerns, but we also want to be biblically informed. So I want to give you some kind of counterpoint to those reasons with objective truths that we've already looked at. First of all, baptism is commanded by Christ himself. He didn't give an age requirement. There's no age delineation, just true followers of Christ. Second of all, and we looked at this a number of weeks ago, Ephesians 6.1, where children are told to obey their parents in the Lord, it makes a very strong case for believing children to be expected to obey in all aspects of the Christian life. They're told to obey their parents in the Lord. This is just a phrase that for the Apostle Paul means Christians. These are children who are old enough to understand that command and expected to obey it. Here's a third just fact that we have to consider. Jesus 
His attitude towards children was very inclusive. It was very inclusive. We're all familiar with Matthew 19, 14, where Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, this is not direct proof for the practice of baptizing children, but it does help define our gracious attitude toward them. Here's another issue to consider. The New Testament pattern shows baptism directly after salvation. We've already established that very clearly. Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, 16. Another issue. Baptism is connected to church membership. We've already said this. And so any person who's denied baptism is also denied the privileges and responsibilities of church membership. And one more issue, we've spoken of this as well. Baptism is required to rightly take the Lord's Supper, so any person denied baptism is also being denied the Lord's table. So we have to be judicious. So what do we do about this? Well, we've already established the New Testament pattern for baptism is that it happens after a reliable profession of faith in Christ. But what makes it reliable? I think we could use two simple factors We might call it knowledge and maturity. Knowledge and maturity. First of all, for a person's profession of faith to be reliable, he should have at least a a rudimentary understanding of the gospel and of the meaning of baptism. When somebody says, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, my answer is you don't understand the gospel because that's not the gospel. The professing believer, listen, this is very important. The professing believer is not a recipient of baptism He is a participant in baptism. Does that make sense? Being baptized isn't something that happens to you. It's something that you participate in. So baptizing someone who doesn't understand why he's being baptized serves no purpose whatsoever. And so all these poor babies who are just practically drowned in these little tubs of water in Orthodox traditions and other ways, it's not doing anything except traumatizing the kids. So there has to be knowledge. The second criteria, though, we could call Maturity. What is maturity? This is very, very easy. Maturity is being able to count the cost. That apart from my parents, I can say I desire to follow Christ, though it costs me persecution, though it costs me friends, though it costs me, as Jesus said, my mother and my father and my brother and my sister. If I can count the cost, then I am mature enough to be saved. Now, children, in fact obviously can become believers in an extremely young age. The gospel is for everyone, not just for the mentally cogent. We certainly wouldn't invalidate a young childhood conversion just because they're too young to explain it. It's the Holy Spirit who converts. But some children are simply too young to make a reliable profession of faith. It includes knowledge and maturity. So I I lay all this before you to tell you that based on all of these thoughts, there are some good reasons to consider delaying baptism for very young children. Let me give you some of these reasons. Again, because church membership is connected to baptism, it, it avoids a debate. And that debate is, are all baptized people church members? And we would say yes. But in some church traditions, they baptize some, they baptize the, the older ones and make them church members and the younger ones they don't. And so any child being baptized should understand that this means applying for full church membership. That's what that is. There's another good reason to consider delaying for very young children. A delay gives parents and shepherds the the opportunity to continue speaking with children about the state of their souls, checking in with them, hearing about their, their budding relationship with Christ. 
And this serves as further evidence of salvation and gives everyone confidence that when baptism does occur, it's with full joy and assurance of salvation. There's a third helpfulness with a delay with very young children. It helps avoid uncertain or false professions of faith. Uh, Many children go through multiple crises of faith. I'm saved one day. I'm not saved the next. They're not sophisticated. They're not theologically astute. And that seesawing back and forth is best done before baptism to avoid multiple baptisms. I'm going to tell you, nine out of ten people that I baptize have gotten wet before. I won't say they've been baptized before because they weren't believers. But there's been such a seesawing in the church because we have an easy path to the baptistry. And there's one more good reason for a delay, and that can emphasize the fact that the primary responsibility of children is still to obey parents. Sometimes kids will ask me, what does the Bible say I'm supposed to do? That's simple. Obey your parents. That's it. That's your whole responsibility. You don't have to worry about anything else. You mean I can steal? No, because your parents said don't steal. You mean I can lie? Nope, your parents said don't lie. Obey your parents. So, so how do we strike a balance? Is there a way to allow a child who is a true believer in Christ to come freely to the waters of baptism, as is the responsibility and the privilege of every Christian? Well, as, as a pastor and, and our elders at Grace Bible Church, here's where we're landing to try to consider all of these variables. It's not a perfect policy. It's more of just a guideline. And so we're, we're giving six variables to consider. The first one we're calling parental witness. Parental witness. That parents or guardians should give witness to the fruit of salvation that they've seen in the life of their child, particularly in three areas. Obedience, self-control, and the desire for spiritual things. And so there's parental witness that I'm seeing greater obedience, I'm seeing greater self-control, I'm seeing the desire for parental, for, for spiritual things. It doesn't mean that a child still doesn't get to be a child. They're still young. The second variable we consider is church witness. Church witness. Parents should identify others in the church who have witnessed the fruit of salvation in the life of the child. In other words, if you bring your kid and you say, he's ready to be baptized, he is obeying me and he's uh, doing all the things he's supposed to do, showing spiritual fruit. And we gather 10 other people in the church who say, are you kidding me? He's the wildest kid I've ever met in my life. We want church witness. This might be the student ministries pastor. It might be other saved youth. It might be other families that you spend a lot of time with that say, yeah, we've, we've seen this as well. There's a third variable we would consider and that is articulation of the gospel or knowledge. Articulation of the gospel or knowledge that the child should be able to express the basics of the gospel, by the way, without coaching from their parents. The way we may, in fact, speak to a child without parents in the room. If you want to bring your child, that's great. We may say, wait outside. There's a fourth variable, articulation of personal testimony, and that is maturity. Articulation of personal testimony. In other words, the child should be able to say what they believe has changed their hearts and their minds as a result of salvation. And maybe they don't have a clear before and after story. Now, some of you got saved as, as adults and your, your testimony could make a movie. I mean, it's just disgusting and interesting all at the same time. And some little kids might say, all I can think of is that I sucked my thumb when my mom told me not to. They might not have much of a before and after story, but they need to be able to count the cost to understand that following Christ costs. And by the way, 
as part of this personal testimony, the child should have an unhesitant willingness to publicly proclaim his faith at baptism. If a child tells me, yes, I'm saved, but I, I don't want to publicly profess my faith, I don't want to be in front of people, probably what we'll see this is as further opportunity to continue waiting and counting the cost. Because again, being baptized is the single easiest thing Jesus will ever ask you to do. And so the testimony of the child will be, along with all baptism candidates, approved as it's written out. And so we have those four variables. Let me give you two more. A fifth variable to consider is church membership ability. Church membership ability. We have clearly articulated that baptism is connected with church membership. And any child being baptized should also be fully aware of and be able to commit to full church membership. This means his parents are in agreement with this, that the child will be expected to go through the Grace Connect class, that the child will serve in the church, that they'll give as they're able. Maybe they get 10 bucks a month. Well, he ought to give some of that. And he'll be accountable to the elders of the church as we come alongside the parents. We're not instead of the parents. You do your job as parents, but you understand that all church members are accountable to leadership. And so one more variable, and this is the one that is more just random, but we've looked into what other like-minded churches often do, and so we're recommending a minimum age of 12. Now, I said recommending, because a child who's 12 and yet doesn't demonstrate all these other qualifications, we're going to delay baptism, but in rare instances, a child younger than 12 may be considered, but there should be sufficient reason other than just the parents really want it to happen. So those are the variables that we intend to, to consider because we feel like that every believer should have access to the Lord's table. Every believer should have access to full inclusive membership in the, in the local church. And every believer should have the opportunity to publicly say, I am following Christ. And so we don't want to deny that to anyone who is able to make that profession. So if you desire to be baptized or if you have a child that you believe is ready to be baptized by those criteria that I've listed, after the service, what we want you to do is right over here to my right by the cross will be our our counselors and they'll take your name and contact information. We're going to send you some information by email. And if you have a child still living in your home that you want baptized and he or she wants to be baptized, we're going to set up an interview for you to talk to that child with one of the elders to go through those six criteria so that we're doing our due diligence. And we've already, as we mentioned, set up a baptism service for Sunday evening, June 24th. If you know you need to obey the Lord in this first of all of his commands to those who would take up their cross and follow him, then let's get it done. Let's demonstrate love for Christ. And can I say this? I just want to address two groups right now. The first group, any of you here who have said, I want to follow Christ, but I'm not ready to be baptized and I'm not ready to be a church member, can I say this? Then you're not following Christ, okay? You're not following Christ. Second group I want to address, and really this is the most important thing I'll say all morning. Remember that baptism is not proof of salvation. Do not let the fact that maybe you've been baptized in the past keep you from examining your own heart. There will be lots and lots of people who once got wet in a church building existing in hell for all eternity because they did not examine their hearts. Have you been following Christ in a way that demonstrates a changed life or have you been leading the double life? 
which God will expose as hypocrisy. You need Christ. Don't let your own supposed baptism in the past make you relax and think that even with your double life, God has redeemed you. Come to the cross and come to the waters. And somebody might say, well, I've already been baptized once, but now I'm saved. No, you weren't baptized once. You just got wet in a a lost state. That's it. There's one baptism. So please, come to the cross. Come to the waters. All of you who know Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. It's been a, a kind of a complicated topic for us to tackle. And yet, the simplicity of it is not lost on us either, that in a symbolic act which symbolizes the purification from sin, the washing of regeneration, being made to die with Christ as we go under the water and raised with Christ as we come up out of the water. It is really a very simple symbol. And so, Lord, we would thank you so much for that reminder that we do have a way to be initiated into the body of Christ, a way to be shown to be true followers of of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask you, for any who are here who do not know Christ, we would ask you, Lord, to move in their hearts even now to simply ask for mercy, to simply ask you if you would pay the price for their sin. And for those who need to obey in baptism, Lord, we want to take care of business. We want to demonstrate that we will obey Christ in all areas of life, in all the commands that he gave us, the very first one being to publicly proclaim allegiance to him through baptism. So, Lord, might you do these things to create here in this location a healthy, vibrant, obedient, humble body of believers that gathers together to honor and exalt Christ until that glorious day when he returns. For it is in his name in anticipation of his return that we pray. Amen.